friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine from uh, Manhattan and I, we met in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan for this conference. It's like three-day conference, and it was just for preachers. So the place you want to be right there. And um, so there were about 1,500 of us at this conference, so it was a lot of, a lot of preachers, a lot of people with lots of things to say. And they, uh, for three days, we just kind of went through these like intensives and, you know, electives and all these sorts of things and, and, and listened to, uh, you know, how to, how to get better at what we do. But uh, after the opening evening or after the opening day in the evening, uh, the coordinator of the event came up and uh, asked us to take out all of our conference gear. You know, the, anybody go to conferences and they just give you bags of stuff, you know, the maps, the the times and everything. And there's always about 30% of it that's wrong. And so they have to go through like, this didn't work out. We got to move this to here, whatever. So it was one of those sessions where we're all sitting there. We're looking through our, um, our conference gear. The cool thing about working right here on Peachtree is like, there's all these conference hotels like right here. So we call the people, uh, the badges. That's, that's their nickname. They walk around with their badges, these big badges, you know, they're here for some, uh, you know, urology conference or, you know, it's just really, it's really fun. So uh, every Thursday they come in off the train, they're looking up in the sky, they don't know what's happening, so it's really fun. Um, so I was one of those guys uh, three years ago, and they're going through uh, all the classes, all the electives, and then she says, I, want, I need you to pull out the map, there's this folded map in your gear, and I want to go over some things and locations that are on the map or whatever. And so we're all got the maps out, and she's like, you know, it's a map of the city. So here's the main sessions. There's some classes over here, some groups that are meeting over here and whatever. She goes through all that. She goes through where the restaurants are, where the hotels are located, et cetera. And then the very last thing that she did was she said, I want you to notice in the bottom uh, right-hand corner of the map, we have put a list of the top seven or eight uh, local pubs that serve the best beer. (laughs) That's kind of how it was when she said that, too. And um, so my friend and I are in the balcony, so we can kind of see the reactions of everybody. And there was like a percentage of people that were like, did they, did they really just at a preacher's conference like drop in the top seven pubs for you to go to after sessions? Did they just do that? And then there were other people who were like high-fiving and like, you know, I knew this was going to be a good conference. And uh, so... We got to see all of that happening from, uh, from the balcony, so it was, really, it was really fun. But I'm not saying, like, she just said, oh, and by the way, there's seven or eight, you know, places that we recommend. She began to, with the help of someone else that was helping with the conference, run through all of those, and they began to list, oh, this place serves this kind of beer, this place serves this kind of beer, and you definitely, if you're into this sort of beer, you want to go to this place. It was like a wine-tasting, coffee-tasting, sort of like we're hearing you know, I don't know what we were hearing. It was, it was pretty extraordinary. So I look at my friend and I was like, this is crazy. This is a first is what I said. This is a, definitely a first for me because I've been to a lot of conferences and it was like, you know, they, that's just never in the gear, right? Um, <laughs> what is in the gear at most conferences is the showroom information where you can go and buy things. But this, this particular map had the, uh, the listing of the best places to get beer, which uh, I assume raised the question among many of the conference goers, um, this question of, so what is the relationship between, or what should the relationship be between the Christian and alcohol? Uh, I'm assuming, we didn't talk about that, but I'm assuming that that conversation flew across dinner tables that night. Uh, What is the relationship to be between 
uh, Christians and alcohol. My son, who is 10 now, um, he's not an alcoholic, but I didn't know if you know where I was going with that. Um, but he, this past year, got really into America's Funniest Home Videos. Tom Bergeron is like his hero. Like, he walks around, he just quotes Tom Bergeron. I didn't even know who Tom Bergeron was, and then he turned it on. I was like, that's Tom Bergeron. The game show master, right? Uh, Dancing with the stars, et cetera. But, uh, you know, he's got it on the Netflix, so, like, he's just dialing up AFV every single night. Like, it's just the thing he's doing. And, you know, he may, you know, he's like, will you watch it with us? He makes us watch it with him, so we're just sitting there. And it's just, is anybody old enough to remember Ed McMahon and Dick Clark's, like, bloopers and practical jokes? Remember that show? Anybody old enough for that? No, okay. Uh, the rest of you look it up. It's pretty, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, but it's the same sort of thing, except it's basically just, you know, you've seen, the, you've seen the show. And like he, my son is just cracking up at some of the stuff they do. Like they're on the trampoline, they put the trampoline by the house and they get on the roof of the house and they're going to jump on the trampoline and try to do the Ferris Bueller over the fence from the trampoline. Like, and people get hurt. It looks like they're dying. They're blowing up snowmen. They're, you know, they're there's always the guy in the field behind the pickup truck with a rope tied to the truck and he's on an alligator raft and they're going all over, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know the show. And my son finally, like, I just didn't have the heart to tell him, you know, he's like, these guys are so crazy and fun or whatever. And then he's like, why do they do these things? And I finally just had to say, son, they're drunk. (laughs) And he's like, what? And I was like, they're stone cold drunk. I mean, a video camera, alcohol, and the prospect of winning a hundred grand goes a long way. Like, (laughs) this is why they're jumping off the house. This is why they're water skiing in an alligator raft behind the pickup truck. I mean, like, they're just gone, bro. And so this has opened up the conversation with my son because my son, you know, growing up, maybe like many of you did, if you've grown up in the church, you get one or two messages about alcohol. The, the dominant message in the church is that you just should stay away from it. It is absolutely evil. It's a prohibitionist stance. It's, you know, don't go near the stuff. It's a sin to drink. Like this is sort of, the, maybe you grew up in that environment. And uh, so my son was starting to get some of that from, you know, uh, different angles from different people. And so this has actually been a good thing. I mean, Tom Bergeron has opened the door for us to talk to him about what the scriptures actually say about uh, alcohol. It's similar to when my son assumed that every Pharisee in the Bible was evil. And we finally had to sort of say, you know what? Jesus was friends with a lot of Pharisees. And uh, they're not evil people. And so there's just all these things that maybe we assume that God, you know, feels a certain way about certain things. And so this has actually opened up a good discussion. Um, And we're going to do that this morning uh, if, you, if you don't mind. Uh, a couple things about today's sermon that you need to know. One, it is about alcohol. It is about uh, what the relationship of the Christian should be to alcohol. Uh, two, it is not a response to anything that we have heard about going on in our church family. So if you were thinking that, if you were like, was he at that place last week? Like, don't. I wasn't. I wasn't there. I mean, I was there. You know, I, I know. Never mind. But I wasn't there. And uh, so this is, you can rest assured this is not anything that was written in response to anything that we have heard of. And I will say that when it comes to alcohol and maybe struggles with alcohol, these these are some of the subjects that always remain quiet anyway. 
And so, uh, but it's not in a response to that. It's just the next passage for us in the letter of Ephesians that we've been going through. So, I mean, we knew this was coming before you knew this was coming. And so we just decided, well, we'll just run with it and, and talk about the theology of beer um, and what the Bible has to say about that. So it's not, in any, it's not a response to anything uh, like that. What I don't want you to do today is um, maybe a disclaimer, maybe an apology. This is, this is probably not a sermon. I was telling my wife this, uh, this week, and I was like, this is just the most uninteresting talk I've ever written um, it doesn't feel inspiring. It doesn't feel like, I, just, I mean, I just told you my two best stories for the day. It, gets, it goes downhill from here. Um, but like, it's just not one of those, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, just buckle in and we're just going to do some teaching. I have lots of scriptures. We'll throw them on the slides. And, um, and that's all we're going to do today. But what I don't want you to do is to leave here and um, be in one of two places. I, I don't want you to leave and think or say, gosh, man, uh, Christian Church Buckhead is such a cool place because the pastor likes dark beer. Like, I, that's not the point of today's sermon. And I don't want you to leave if you are someone who is in a deep fight with alcohol and that you did not hear today that there are steps you can take towards healing, right? And I'll end with that so you won't forget that. But what I do want you to leave with today is a nice, proper understanding of what the Scriptures have to say about this issue that is a very normal thing in our culture, as it was uh, back then. So, I mean, uh, we're just going to dive into that and, and learn some things uh, along the way. Okay? Are you ready? All right, get out your bulletins. I'm going to tell you where the best places are to get beer in Atlanta. So, so. Just kidding. You already know where those are. All right. Um, let's, our, our main passage is Ephesians 5, 15 through 20, and I've broken this down into a few uh, sections. Let's start with verses 15 and 16. Uh, it, Paul says, look carefully then how you walk. Some versions say how you live. Watch your life, he says in uh, the Timothy letters. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. And so here he says essentially the same thing. Look carefully then how you walk. So how we walk, how we live is not something that is careless. I mean, this is very simple, you know, exegesis here. This is just be careful about your life. Don't not pay attention to your life. Be present in your life. Be aware of what's happening as you walk, as you live, as you move, as you do life. That's what he's saying. And then he just qualifies that, defining it for us, not as unwise, but as wise. So wisdom uh, among the Jewish tradition and all through Scripture is a major theme. Somehow tapping into wisdom, not just, you know, cultural wisdom or savviness or whatever, but just the wisdom of God. Not as people who are disconnected or unhinged from God's wisdom, but people who are very connected to it. So this look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, is very key. Now, this verse, the first part of this, by the way, is really the ending of a long section of this letter, which began in uh, the first two verses of this chapter, where Paul says, be imitators of God, which is just another way of saying or reminding us that, remember back in Genesis where it says, let us make man in our image? that you are an image bearer of the creator, that you are a walking kind of explanation to what's going on, that you're like his fingerprint. Uh, You're his, as Paul says in Ephesians, that you're his poetry, you're his workmanship, 
that you're a piece of who he is. There's an identity about you that is very connected to the divine. And so this is simply part of that, like be imitators of God. The word imitation uh, in the Greek is where we get the word mimic. So we mimic God with our lives. And so he begins the chapter with that, uh, that challenge. And then between those two verses in our, in our, verse, our passage today, he goes through all of these different moral struggles that were happening in these churches in the first century. Now, part of this was simply because any church that was outside of Jerusalem, which was the hub for Judaism, um, was comprised of this beautiful kaleidoscope of nations and people. There were Jews that had become Christians. They were still just called Jews at the time. And then there were uh, or a sect of the Jews. And then there were Gentiles, which is an all-skate kitchen sink word for any other nation. So you've got this nice picture of God's intention for the world in these churches existing outside of Jerusalem, where all of these different cultures were coming together. And you have this Jewish culture intermingling with the nations. And the nations are coming in with their own baggage, they're coming in with their own stories. They're coming in with their own behavioral practices. They're coming in with their own understandings about culture and life and how to live in the world. And in Ephesus in particular, which was a place that one of, these, the, uh, one of the places this letter ended up, there were all sorts of things that were contributing to some really gray areas about where does God fit in on how we live our lives? And so you've got like temples to prostitutes. You've got all these sort of things that you can do at, you know, at at a beck and call. And so Paul has to address some of these things. So you can assume that if Paul has to say, hey, be careful how you live, not as wise, but unwise, but as wise people, that there's probably some things going on in the churches there that wasn't very wise. So he's telling them to be very careful. Long introduction to get to the second part of the verse. Making the best use of the what? Now, some of this is, uh, has to do with history. The church at this time, although very young, was already experiencing some pressure, some cultural pressure, some social pressure, some relational pressure, uh, not so much physical persecution, not at its height. That comes many, many uh, decades later, but they were already beginning to experience what it was like to be ostracized and to be persecuted in that respect. In the Jewish culture, was sensing an end to what they had always, you know, been about. That there was a transition coming in the, uh, in the Jewish culture as well. And so Paul is speaking into this pressurized, stressful time. And he says, look, make, making the best use of your time, which is a nice way of saying you never know when your last breath is going to be. So don't waste it. Now this is a nod to the words of Moses in Psalm 90, verse 12, where Moses says, you know, teach us, O Lord, to number our days, like to really pay attention to our life. Teach us to number every moment of every day and count it a blessing for you. And then Paul says, because the days are what? Evil. Isn't that great? Like if you work Monday through Friday, you get that. Like, yes, the days are evil. The nights are glorious and divine. The days are evil. Uh, unless, of course, you work for me. So, <laughs> so there's the opening uh, few statements before he even gets into this issue of alcohol. It's about living carefully. It's about being wise, being tapped into the wisdom of God, understanding that every moment counts. So this is about not falling asleep at the wheel of escape, not just saying whatever to life and just escaping in some way. 
which is very tied to drunkenness, and then because the days are evil. All right, next slide. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, you have to imagine that these churches, they were not good at this. They were having a hard time understanding what the Lord's will is. And then in verse 18 and 19, this is our main piece. And do not get drunk with wine. Now that does not mean you can get drunk with other things. Don't do that. (laughs) This is sort of the drink of the day, right? So do not get drunk with wine, Paul says, for that is, what's that word? Just say that word. I just love this word. Debauchery. Yeah, if you're a David Gray fan, there's actually a song called Debauchery way back. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Isn't that just a strange word? And I'll explain what this word means uh, in a moment because it may not be what you think. But Paul says, do not get drunk with wine. And then he says, because that is this. That is debauchery. And as I will say a few times in the sermon today, that drunkenness is rarely about drunkenness, but it's about something else. It's always about that. This is always about something else. And then he says, but be filled with the Spirit. And I like this little turn here because the wine, the drink, the, is a Spirit. Don't be filled with that Spirit, but be filled with this Spirit. The Greek is actually just be filled with Spirit. Like there's no the, just Spirit. Like be filled with that Spirit, God, the Spirit of God. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which as a kid I always thought, that just sounds terribly boring. Um, Singing to one another, you know, I'm going to recite the psalms to you. But what Paul is talking about, and we'll look at this next week in chapter 6, but he's inserting the positive opposite to what feels like a negative command. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with these things. Replace those behaviors with this sort of thing. And he fleshes this out a little more uh, in our passage next week. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Eugene Peterson in his version of the message, like this, he does a great translation of this, but I don't know if you have the message, but it's very, it's very street level. And, um, and he says, look, change your drinking songs to worship songs. Like this is what he's talking about. And the church did this in history, by the way. I don't know if you know uh, some of this, but some of the old hymns that we sing were bar tunes that were remixed. Uh, did you know that? You didn't know that. Uh, I'll come up with some sort of signal. Like if we're singing one, I'll raise my hand down here. And you can say, this is an old bar song. This is fantastic. And some of, you, some of them you can hear. The old German hymns, they just kind of have this like, you can just picture everybody. A mighty fortress is our God. I mean, that's totally a pirate song. I mean, there's no doubt. So, um, so. Um, any more on this one? Do not get drunk with wine. It's debauchery. Yeah, so this is um, the biblical view of drinking. That there is a point where God says, that's too far, right? You've gone too far in that. You've gone a little bit too far uh, in your consumption. And it's what we call uh, drunkenness. Now, how do you define drunkenness? The Bible actually has a lot of explanations of this from, you know, vomiting to sexual acts to uh, not knowing where you are. (laughs) There's all these different things. I mean, you know what that is. I mean, we all know what happens when someone uh, has had too much to drink. But I do want to stop here and back up and say the Bible does not have uh, a negative view of alcohol. It doesn't. And I want to show you just a couple of verses 
or a couple of passages. One is from Psalm 104, and it says, this is a poem, a prayer. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for the man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to what? Gladden the heart of man. Now, do not read gladden the heart of man as saying, I get it, you drink a lot, you're glad. Uh, let me just paint it to you this way. Paint, it, paint the picture for you this way. Anybody a coffee fan? Got a few? Okay, that's good. Um, I'm a coffee fan. Doesn't coffee, like when you're sitting at the right table, got a good book, good music in the background, nice pretentious guy behind the counter, uh, you know, when you're in that sort of environment, isn't it, doesn't it just gladden your heart? I mean, it's like you sit down with people and you've got a nice cup of coffee and you're like, man, this is just good times. Does that make sense? Or music. Doesn't music just gladden your heart? I got up yesterday morning and I, I've got a record player and I just love these old vinyls that I have. But like, I just pulled out the Almond Brothers and made coffee and was like, this just gladdens my heart right here. Uh, some of you just wrote me off. But <laughs> coffee, Almond Brothers, kids are asleep. It was fantastic, you know, um, thus being almost 40. All right. Uh, but you get the idea, like, what this is, is that it's, it's a poem, it's a prayer of we can enjoy God's good earth and it makes us glad that he has provided for us great things like food and drink. And so there's a positive view here of alcohol. Jesus, of course, was accused of being uh, quite questionable when it came to alcohol. Next slide, you'll see this is Jesus speaking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Was Jesus those things? He was a friend of those people. Did he behave in those ways? No. But he loved the people who did. And so he was often accused by association of being one of those people. Now, this is where it's good to talk about there are three um, major views that the church has of alcohol. There's, of course, the prohibitionist view. There's an abstinence view. And then there's this view of moderation. Um, the abstinence view, I mean, you get the prohibition view. This is the... Alcohol is sinful, therefore no one should have it. Get rid of it. That's the prohibitionist view. It's not a biblical view, by the way, uh, because the Bible never says that alcohol is evil. And uh, the other thing with that is uh, writer, theologian, New Testament professor Scott McKnight says about this very issue, when you start saying that, when you're talking about prohibition of alcohol, you are saying more than the Bible says about it. He calls you a zealot. Zealotry is the word that you are imposing a moral that the Bible doesn't impose. That you are more biblical than the Bible, which is a scary thing to be. And I don't know if you grew up in a culture like that where when you finally grew up and looked back and you're like, why in the world did they teach us that? Because it's not even scriptural. And there's, some, there's obviously some reason, but uh, the prohibitionist view falls into that line. That that is an evil thing and needs to be done away with, which it isn't. Now, if you take that view, then you're going to have to trash all the computers, all the internet, because those things can be used for evil as well. And I would uh, say that money is the cause of far more moral and social decay than alcohol. And uh, the Bible has much more to say about our finances being the root of all sorts of evil than it does anything else. And so that's one of the views. The other view is the abstinence view, which is better than the first view, but the abstinence view is, 
a biblical model, but abstinence as prescribed by the Bible is to be done in certain situations and for very particular reasons. Uh, Some people will abstain from alcohol because they don't want to, and they quote the scripture saying, I don't even want to have the very appearance of evil. And so I just, I mean, I had a pastor friend who wouldn't even order an IBC root beer because it looked like a beer. I was like, well, it must be awesome to be you. Like, that's just, (laughs) what do you do, right? Um, But that's a misinterpretation and a misappropriation of a verse that is about something far different. Because again, the very appearance of evil, that may just be someone's perception, particularly when the Bible doesn't look at alcohol and say it's an evil thing. In fact, the Psalms will say it's a blessed thing. It's a gift from God that gladdens the heart. And so to take an abstinence view because you think that that's saving you from some reputation that I don't know Jesus had, it's a, it's a terrible interpretation. It's not something we should lean into. If we abstain for very particular reasons that the Bible does encourage us to abstain from, that's a good thing. And I'll talk about that uh, in a moment because there is a time for Christians to not drink. There is a time when we should not do that. Now, the moderation view is the biblical model, but not just for alcohol. A moderate life is the life that God desires. Um, Jesus says uh, it this way in Matthew 5, blessed are the what? Meek. Say the word meek. What does meek mean? Meek means a balanced life. It means you are not wavering into the extremes, right? You're not uh, materialistic, and you're not overly frugal. You're generous. That's the middle ground, right? You're not a drunkard, and you're not a prohibitionist. You're balanced. You're in control. Uh, Galatians 5, uh, that one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. You're a controlled person. A meek person is not weak. A meek person is actually very strong. They learn how to live between the extremes. Now, you remember the word debauchery? Uh, next slide. This is what the Greek word is, uh, asutia, debauchery. And it means living an unbalanced life. I used to think debauchery as a kid meant you were just stone cold drunk. You couldn't walk. That's what I thought that meant. Debauchery meant you were drunk. But what debauchery actually means is that your life is off-center, that you're not balanced. And I guess that has something to do with being drunk. You're not very balanced, so maybe that's the connection. Uh, You know, when you're walking sideways, but you think you're walking upright, that's always fun to see. Um, So when Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for it is or that is debauchery, he's saying that once you cross that line of consumption and you are drunk, then you are off-center of where God is wants you to be. Your life is unbalanced. Your behavior is unbalanced. Now, what is that for everyone? Well, that's only something that you know, right? Now, I will say this. If, uh, if we're talking about threshold, like I can drink two drinks, I can drink seven drinks, and your goal is to see how many you can like build yourself up to, that's a terrible goal. That's a whole different problem. Like, I'm just slowly working my way up to 25. Like, this this is not the goal of this. Like, how, how far can I, like, train myself not to get drunk? That's a different problem. 
But whatever that line is for you, when you cross that line, you're entering into this asutia, this state of imbalance, of being off-center. And I don't have to tell you, like, what happens when people are drunk. I mean, this sermon is not going, you know, I, I didn't even include anything about, well, you know all the bad things that happen when people, you know that stuff. That's not anything that we need to go over. Now, what I do want to do is uh, start to close this down with one of the more famous passages about um, abstaining. Because I feel like as Christians, this is the most important thing for us to learn and to understand and, uh, and to deal with and to work into our lives. It comes from Romans 14, and we're going to do the first three verses and then some of the final uh, few verses of this passage. But Paul begins saying, uh, as for the one who is weak in faith, Paul doesn't mix words, by the way, your faith is weak. This is what he says. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not quarrel over opinions. Now, what he's referring to, uh, as you'll see in a moment, is about eating and drinking certain things. And he refers to people who have a struggle with eating and drinking certain things as people who are weak in their faith. Not weak as a person, not less as a person, but their faith level at that point does not allow them to override their conscience. And so he says that's just a weakness of theirs that hopefully they will overcome through time. And he says if those people come into your midst and come into your community, into your church family, they're going to have opinions about like what you're eating and drinking. He says don't fight with them. It's, it's, not, it's not the way to go. One person believes he may eat anything. That's me. Uh, I'll have that, I'll have that. While the weak person only eats vegetables, that is not me. Now, this is an issue of vegetarianism, but it is not the same reason that people are vegetarians now. I mean, most people are vegetarians now for health reasons, but then it was spiritual and religious. When these Gentiles were becoming followers of Christ, and Jews were in these communities as well, in some of these temples in these cities, they were sacrificing meats to idols, to gods, to uh, gods of the nation, gods of the city, gods of, you know, the empire. And so there was this conflict going on in people's minds about it is, there's no way that it is right for us to eat this meat because it was sacrificed to Dagon or some god. And so they had this struggle. It's like, do I, do I take the money I just won in the lottery or do I not? Like, this is the struggle that they were having as people of Christ, as new followers of Christians. And so this whole thing about eating meat versus vegetables was all very religious, not cultural, not based on health, but based on spirituality. And so Paul comes in and says, those people who are struggling with that are weak in their faith at this point. And he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So nobody wins there, right? We can't look at someone who is abstaining and judge them. And the people who are abstaining cannot look at us and judge. It's just an impasse. And Paul says, don't pass judgment either way, right? For God has welcomed him, everybody. And so this is where Paul begins this teaching about eating and drinking. Next slide. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather, and this is so key today, uh, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or a sister, right? And he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, 
which puts a hole in the prohibition mindset. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. In other words, what Paul is saying in his best inspired words is that some people still deeply struggle with certain things that they don't need to struggle over, but they may struggle over them their whole life. And he says, for me, I know that nothing is unclean, right? When I'm living a meek, controlled, balanced life, it's all good. It's all part of God's good earth and God's good creation. But then he inserts this incredibly mature approach for someone who is not weak in their faith, that they take the high road and decide never to put a stumbling block in the way of someone who is. What does this mean for us? This is very practical. If you don't have a problem with alcohol, it's not a problem for you. You don't, you don't, you don't drink so much that you get drunk. It's just, it's a wonderful thing to have with a meal. You know the best pubs with the best beer. It's just not an issue for you. It's not, you're not possessed by it. And yet, if you have friends who do, if you have friends who do struggle with it, if you have friends who uh, are maybe recovering from a long struggle with alcohol, or maybe you have friends who tend to drink too much, but no one's ever said anything about it to them, Paul is saying it is your role to take away those tripwires for your friends, which means abstinence has a, has a purpose, and the purpose is not for you, but for someone else. And so the mature Christian says about drinking, uh, so our friends are coming over, and I know that John really struggles with alcohol, so you know what? We're going to have tea tonight. We're going to go like tea from Kroger or Publix. It's amazing. It should be an alcohol. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. That's what we're going to go with tonight. Yeah, but I'll bring the beer. No beer. It's my house, my rules, no beer. Do you understand what I'm saying there? This is what Paul is saying. If you know of someone in your community, in your friend, friendship circles, who struggles with this, you get rid of it. It's done. Done and done. It's out. It's in the closet. It's locked up. Never comes out. It's not even an issue. If you say, if I say that, or if I've just said that, and you're saying in your head, I couldn't do that, then you might have a problem. Well, you have to have wine with dinner, do you? Or do you not? I do. Then let's check that. Let's dig into that. Alcoholism is not always associated with drunkenness. It's associated with habit. This fixation of like, this is where it belongs. Every day, all the time. And if I take that from you, how do you feel? Do you feel empty? Do you feel edgy? Do you start punching things? Do you, what do you do? That's the deep question. And so, what Paul is saying here is, there are people like that in your life. And the mature thing to do as a follower of Christ is to not have it in their presence, to not talk about it if they're struggling very deeply with it, to not say things like, man, I can't wait till you get over this so we can go to so-and-so. I mean, this is not the conversations that we should have, right? Next slide. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, this is the guy, I mean, man, I wish, I, I had this uh, elder friend one of the elders in the church I worked at years and years ago, we were out of town at a conference and um, he smoked for like 30 years and then he stopped. Um, and we were sitting at breakfast in a restaurant and outside there was a man smoking at the uh, bus stop. 
And we were talking, and this guy was just staring out the window. And I said, Tommy, what's wrong? Tommy said, you see that man out there? We all turned around. He's smoking. He's like, what I would give to be smoking. He's grieved by watching someone smoke because that's where he wants to be. That's what he would rather do. He doesn't. He fights it. He stays away from it. But when someone lights up, it smells good to him. That's where he would rather be. It grieves his heart that he can't be there. So again, this is someone comes to your home and, I mean, this may be the worst thing to do is when you're like, what do you guys want? What beer do you want? What tea do you want? I'll just have sweet tea. It's terrible. You're grieving him or her. Right? Paul says, if you're doing that, you are no longer walking in love. Strong words. But what you eat, do not, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Next slide. So, and this is how he closes it. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter uh, for eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace, right? And for mutual understanding. The Christian community is called to hold one another up. And in this issue of alcohol and drunkenness, we can make a major positive statement. This is what Paul is saying. Be very careful about those who are weak in your presence. Now you think Paul's straightforward. Look at what Jesus says. Whoever receives one such child, and child here is someone who is struggling, who is weak, who is oppressed, in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, who believes in me to sin, the Greek there is to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Isn't Jesus sweet? I mean, Jesus says here, hey, look, let me tell you something. If someone is struggling, if someone is weak, if someone is uh, oppressed and you cause them to stumble, it would be better for you to die with a piece of stone around your neck like you've been killed by the mob in the bottom of a lake. That's strong language. I mean, Paul's very nice. Like, hey, listen, if someone's struggling with this or that, like, just, just abstain. Jesus is like, I'll take you down. Because <laughs> it grieves people when you're doing things that they can't do. And you're friends with, you are friends with someone who may or may not have ever said, alcohol is a big struggle for me. You may not know it. And you may be every day, every week, grieving them. And they may be partaking. They may be like right with you. They may be leading the way. But you are a contributor to that. And so some of this is about having really tough conversations and honest and open dialogue with people who may or may not be struggling with certain things. Uh, the last two verses of Ephesians 5, this is how Paul closes it um, Closes it out, giving thanks always and for everything to God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus, submitting 
to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's his way of saying, for Christ's sake, we do what's right for the other person. Does that make sense? So wherever you are on the spectrum of how you feel about drinking, the biblical view is moderation and abstinence when necessary. No judgment, no arrogance, nothing like that. That's the biblical model. And if you're struggling with alcohol, uh, what I want you to know today is that we want you to take the steps to get out of that. We want you to take the steps to be free from that. We want you to take the necessary steps towards healing and redemption. We do not have the tools as pastors to help you through that, but we know people that do. And so please let us know. Email us. Talk to me after the service, and we will get you on the right path to healing. Amen? Let me pray, and then we will move into a time uh, of communion, um, which is just juice. And the reason it's... The reason it's just juice is because we don't want a tripwire in our service for some of you who may. I mean, how terrible would it be that you fall off the, you know, the cart because of communion, right? And so uh, it's just, it's juice and crackers, but it is so powerfully symbolic of the sacrifice of Christ. His body was broken, his blood was shed uh, for the sins of the world. And so we we celebrate this each week, and I'll pray, and you can move to one of the four tables, two in the front, two in the back, and um, as always, you're welcome to take it at the table or just take it back to your seats um, as well, and then we'll sing a song on the way out. Uh, Let's pray together. God, thank you for um, your word. Sometimes it's just so attractive, and sometimes it's very difficult. And um, Father, today is one of those passages that as we talked about last week, just speaks truth in, in, into our lives, and it's, it's hard for us to uh, sometimes uh, listen. Uh, but God, the greatest thing, and we've already sung about this today, and we'll, we'll reenact this through the communion, is that uh, your sacrifice covers all failures, and you always remain with us, that you always love us. And God, if there are people in this room that are in, in a deep fight, an underground fight with, uh, with alcohol, that you will inspire them today to take the steps towards healing. And God, for those of us in the room who may sometimes be arrogant because we are not weak in that part of our faith, teach us to be humble and to submit to those around us. God, release us from all Uh, things that we feel like we need. Teach us to be meek and balanced as we walk this world in your name. Amen.